Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, your host and a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show... A man turning fish scales into electrical generators. We want to use the fish scale because it is a biocompatible one. And it will power the tiny biomedical devices. And we ask what's next for SpaceX after one of its rockets exploded last week at Cape Canaveral in Florida. Rockets are hard. They're basically big bombs and you try and sort of detonate them in a controlled way. History suggests that most rockets get more reliable as time goes on. More about that a little later. First, a quick trip back in time. 350 years ago this month, London was burning. Okay, that's just me with a wrapper in the studio. A small spark at night transformed into an inferno, now known as the Great Fire of London. It tore through the center of the city. Thousands of tightly packed wooden buildings were not only destroyed, but indeed became fuel for the blaze. People have been a little wary of building with the wood since then, but now the material is making a comeback. With fire protection methods and sprinkler systems and other devices, architects do now think they can make wooden buildings that uh, can exceed the current uh, fire regulations. This is Paul Markley, our innovation editor. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. Paul, this is the age of steel and concrete and algorithms. Why are people turning back to timber? Well, steel and concrete have a very high carbon footprint. If you build a skyscraper out of those materials, the higher you go, the more material you need. And so on that piece of land, there's an awful lot of carbon being consumed in the construction. Wood, of course, is a sink for carbon because it locks carbon dioxide up from the atmosphere in the process of photosynthesis. So it's a very green material to build with and has been used for thousands of years as a perfectly adequate construction material. Okay, but when they were used for thousands of years as a good construction material, the buildings were four stories tall. Right now, if we were to build a skyscraper, I would have thought that the higher you get, it becomes a little bit flimsy, but perhaps not. No, um, two things really you can address there. Firstly, the structural integrity. Well, there's a new test carried out by Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, a firm of architects, and Oregon State University. And they took a huge wooden floor, some 11 metres big. Now, when we're talking about wood today in modern manufacturing and construction, we're talking about engineered timber. These are not just planks of wooden rafters, as you would have built houses when the Great Fire of London came along. But this engineered timber is a composite structure, and it's extremely strong. And they basically put it in a giant press and pressed and pressed and watched what happened. And it finally broke at a a load of 82,000 pounds. That's more than 37,000 kilograms. And that was eight times its design load. So strength wood certainly has. And especially today with these new construction techniques, they can enhance that. As to the question of fire, yes, wood does burn. But again, if you've ever tried to light a campfire and all you've got is logs, 
you know that you need actually a sustained heat source to make wood burn. Okay, let me press on with, with what I think the natural skepticism would be. One of the great fears of wooden buildings, of course, is also biological. It's termites and it's worms. Uh, Romans used to burn all of the block when actually a building uh, that had worms in it was actually discovered because they would spread so quickly and they'd be so destructive to the buildings. How do we get around that? Well, as one of the um, architects I spoke to pointed out to me, concrete and steel also rot if you don't look after it. And wooden buildings, if you do look after it, can last a very long time. The Temple of the Flourishing Law in Japan, I mean, that's built from wood that was probably felled in 594. And it's withstood all sorts of things. And it's five stories high. And it's still there in good nick. So this engineered wood, it sounds like it could be costly, is it? Wood generally in volume terms is more expensive than concrete. There's no way out of that. But because you use less concrete and uh, wood being lighter, you can build faster. Deliveries, you need fluid deliveries to the construction site. You, you can save on CO2 emissions. And also has, you know, people do like wood. It has a great quality about it. You can end up with a, with a wooden building actually being cheaper than one made from steel and concrete. And steadily we're seeing taller and taller wooden buildings emerging around the world. So tell me about that. What's in the blueprint phase for new buildings constructed of wood? There is a 14-storey building called the Treat Building in uh, Norway. Now that's currently the tallest wooden building. But there's one in British Columbia that was recently topped out at 18 storeys. There is also a 21-storey project planned in Amsterdam. There's also an 80-storey wooden skyscraper proposed for London. Now, whether that would be built or not, we don't know. I mean, if it did, it would be second highest building in London next to the Shard. So to some extent, these plans and these conceptual designs are pushing the building codes to try and get people to accept that the engineering today from modern wood could allow you to build taller and safer. It sounds great. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Ken. Next up, can dead fish make electricity? Researchers in India have been searching for a new way to turn the byproducts of their diet into something useful. We want to use the fish scale because it is a biocompatible one. And it will power the tiny biomedical devices. That was Dr. Tabankar Mandal of Jadapur University in India. His team went to a fish processing market and collected the leftover fish scales. After some chemical treating, they had what they were after, collagen. A fish scale made of the collagen's nanofibers. And most of the collagen nanofibers are well aligned. And for getting the piezoelectric phenomena... Piezoelectric, that is the quality seen in some materials in which pressure, motion, or stress can generate electricity. For getting the piezoelectric phenomena, the alignment of the collagen nanofiber is the, one of the main requirements. And for this case, we don't need to align externally. It's already done. So it's natural source, which is readily available, and alignment of the collagen fiber is already there. By putting a few scales in series and adding electrodes on each end, they had a small generator, or what they call an energy harvester. More specifically, we can say mechanical energy harvester. We call uh, like mechanical energy abundantly available all time and everywhere, from wind flow to body motion. And even during sleeping, we are producing the, you know, mechanical energy. Dr. Mandel says that the energy generated would be enough to power small implantable medical devices within the body. You know, nowadays our device is becoming, uh, you know, smaller and smaller. So the requirements of power is also smaller. 
And so if, if we want to use this kind of device inside our body, then it is, it is useful because the blood flow and heartbeat motion, our body motion can able to you know, power up the, this kind of device. And what better source of constant pressure and motion than the human heart? Another emerging application would be like a pacemaker battery. So, so it, it no need to replace after five or six years because it will drive up from the heartbeat motion, blood flow, and our regular activity. So it's it, it, it like a cell-power device. All that's left for them now is to scale it up. Last week, we explored the Anthropocene, the idea that humans have made such an impact on the planet in recent decades that we should consider this moment a new geological epoch. The conversation on social media was vibrant. On Facebook, Mike McRae said, It's why many individuals would like to get off this rock once and for all. Could we ever become a space-faring species? One respondent replied, never. There'll be thermonuclear war by 2025, and the ensuing chaos and depopulation will send us back to the Bronze Age. Sadly, it's reminiscent of the old adage, I don't know how World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Please contribute to the conversation by sharing feedback, comments, and thoughts about the show on our Facebook and Twitter pages. You can find us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or send us an email at radio at economist.com. Next up, the final frontier. Humans are trying to become a space-faring species, but mishaps invariably happen. Such was the case with Elon Musk's company SpaceX after one of its rockets exploded on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral. Tim Cross, our science correspondent, has been reporting on the fallout. Tim, first, what happened? Do we know? We don't know for sure, Ken. SpaceX have said so far that something went wrong with one of the fuel tanks on the rocket, but we don't have any um, exact details. They were doing a pre-flight test. They were getting ready for something called uh, a live fire test where the rocket is held down by clamps and the engines are, are fired to test that everything is working. And as they were getting ready for that test, something went wrong. We don't know what. And um, kaboom. What does this mean for SpaceX? Do you think the accident is going to cost it a lot of money and a lot of reputational damage? There will be consequences, yeah. And I mean, we've, we've seen some of those already. So the rocket launch had been contracted by an Israeli company called Spacecom who wanted their satellite to be put into orbit. The satellite was sitting on top of the rocket when the explosion happened. And uh, I imagine it's now sitting in a great many pieces scattered around Cape Canaveral. It's a bit of a problem for them because they are or possibly were, still are, the subject of a takeover bid by a Chinese firm, and that bid was contingent on this launch going ahead successfully. The reputational damage, that's kind of more interesting. So SpaceX have done uh, 29 Falcon flights so far, so their record is 29 flights, two complete failures, and one partial failure. It's not terrible, but people might be starting to wonder. I mean, rockets are hard. They're basically big bombs, and you try and sort of detonate them in a controlled way. History suggests that most rockets get more reliable as time goes on. But SpaceX, for its part, I mean, they point out they have a big, a nice fat order book. Lots of people want to use their rockets because they're so much cheaper than the competition. So they've got this contract with NASA to fly cargo to the ISS. They've also got lots of contracts with various private companies to fly satellites. So they're in a reasonably strong position, but people who might have been looking at their services, will now be thinking, hmm, is there a reliability problem here? And couldn't it be the case that part of the reliability problem is indeed because it is a private sector economy in which companies like Elon's is scrambling to put things into orbit as quickly as possible and are maybe minimizing the role of safety? I think there's an important distinction between sort of safety and reliability. I mean, like we said, no one was injured in this. And 
one of the things about SpaceX is they're doing a whole bunch of things that no the other state-backed rockets aren't really doing. They're really sort of innovating. And of course, one of the points about innovation is that people like to say, if you aren't failing, you aren't trying hard enough. So, Is that true in rocketry? I know that's true well, in website design. This is the thing. So the consequence is obviously, you know, if you screw up your website design, that's bad. If you screw up your rocket, that's potentially really bad. It's, it's, it's an expensive business. And if you do start putting people on them, then, you know, you really have to be very conservative then. But, you know, the consequence of that approach, SpaceX has the cheapest launch prices around. They've been trying things like reusable rockets, where the first stage of these things flies back and, you know, lands on an ocean-going barge so it can be used again, which nobody's ever managed before. And they seem to have now recently, just recently got the hang of this. And if they, you know, once they've got that working, it should let them cut their prices even more. So I suppose what you could say is, you know, if if you're going to go with with a company that is innovating in this way and, and trailblazing all this new technology... They offer low prices, but they're trying to do more than maybe some of their competitors are. And maybe you've got to accept a sort of slightly higher risk. SpaceX has a lot coming up. What does this mean for that? Well, so this is the other place that you might see some of this fallout. So they had several more Falcon launches due before the end of the year. They've all been now uh, put on hold. And they're already in the middle of an investigation trying to figure out what went wrong. That's going to tie up engineers at a time when the company's got a lot on its plate. So early next year, we're supposed to see the first flight of something called the Falcon Heavy, which is a sort of bigger, upgraded version of the rocket that, if it does fly, will be the most powerful rocket currently flying. Whether that will now happen on schedule, um, they haven't said anything. But like I said, it will take up a, a lot of engineers' time. They've also got, besides their cargo contract with NASA, they've got a contract to fly astronauts to the ISS, because at the moment, America can't do that itself. It relies on the Russians, who charge quite a lot for a seat. Now, if you're going to start putting humans on top of your rocket, people are going to want to be really, really sure that you've nailed down the reliability as much as you possibly can. Now, there's a debate about the space capsule that SpaceX have developed has rockets of its own. So if something goes wrong on the launch pad, it it might be able to blast clear. But NASA are going to want to see that every single I and every single T has been dotted and crossed before that goes ahead. Thanks, Tim. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. If you liked it, why not rate it on iTunes? To read Paul's piece on the Renaissance of Wood, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist and printer online. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.